Uh, if you could turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, down, 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 way down. We're going to be starting in verse 6. Six times. Okay. Verse 6. Uh, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Paul says, Now these things, brethren... I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we might reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished. But we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty, and are poorly clothed, and are roughly treated, and are homeless. And we toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we lift this time up to you, Lord. We pray that uh, the message would be pleasing to you, God, Lord, that it would be you speaking, and Lord, I just pray that I would just be an instrument of, uh, for you this morning, God. We thank you for the privilege it is to gather together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's be seated. I'm still pretty hot, Efren, like I need to go down quite a few notches here. So, a big problem that we have seen with the Corinthians uh, up to this point is that they have idolized the wisdom of the world. That's why. This is on. One second. Move over here. One of the problems so far is that the Corinthian church has idolized the wisdom of the world. Right? That's kind of what, that's what we've been seeing for the last, you know, three and a half chapters now. I mean, we're coming to the end of chapter four, and Paul is still in this discussion about an issue of worldview. And we said all the way at the beginning, right, that worldview was going to be kind of a problem here in Corinth because of the cultural syncretism that had invaded the church. And so you have this first century church that is wrestling with the philosophy of the day, 
and the theology of Paul and the theology of the Old Testament. And so this has created some issues within the Corinthian church. And really, what it had caused is jealousy and strife and division within the body of Christ. And so for our purposes this morning, what I want to talk about is one of the issues here is that uh, the reason why these things are kind of happening within the church is because the Corinthian church had forgotten the Lord. They had forgotten what the Lord had done for them. And they had started boasting in men and started boasting in each other rather than God. And so Paul has written to confront this false philosophy and theology within the church. And he admonishes his readers to remember the Lord and to live a life under the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of man. And then Paul makes reference to himself and other apostles as an example of what this kind of life of remembering the Lord looks like. And so what I want us to think about this morning is the reality that really, even though this was written you know, over 1,900 years ago, not much has changed. Christians today still very easily fall into the deceptive traps that the world of the world that the Christians did at Corinth. And so what um, I want kind of our main idea this morning, our big takeaway, is going to be that we must put away all boasting in the wisdom and power of this world, and we must remember our Lord and submit our lives to his kingdom-building work. So let me say that in a different way. We need to put away all boasting outside of Christ. All boasting outside of Christ needs to be done away with. We are called to boast in the Lord only. And we do this by remembering Him and living for Him alone. So let's look at what Paul says now in our passage. Starting in verses 6 and 7. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against another. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Now, this, this first verse here, verse 6, is actually notoriously difficult to translate. Um, one of the reasons is because there's the Greek word there that uh, many of our Bibles has translated as figuratively, which has posed a problem because it's a very rare word. Then there's the question of what are these things which Paul is referring to? And then finally, what does Paul mean by exceeding what is written? 
And so you'll be happy to know that I'm not going to take you through the dozen or so combinations that have come out of this. But I will say, however, that Paul is referring back to what most of what he has already written to the Corinthians here in this letter up to this point, and has been using himself and Apollos as examples for those in Corinth, and especially for the leaders in Corinth, in order to listen to his exhortation and admonish them with warnings to remember those passages of Scripture that he had talked about. Paul at this point has quoted Isaiah a couple times, and Jeremiah, and Job, and the Psalms. And the message from all of these passages from the Old Testament is very clear in these three and a half chapters. Do not boast in men. So the witness of the scriptures itself from the Old Testament put this limitation of pride. We cannot have pride in ourselves. We cannot boast in anything that we have. And so the issue for the Corinthians is that instead of boasting in the Lord, as Paul demands and as the Old Testament scriptures demanded, they have boasted in the wisdom and the power of men. And so therefore, to kind of reveal this level of foolishness, Paul uses a series of rhetorical questions in verse 7. See, sometimes rhetorical questions get the point across a lot better than just statements. You know, Paul saying, you're acting foolishly, maybe that can get the point across. But sometimes a rhetorical question, the reason why it works better is because it gets us to actually stop and think and examine the answer to that question. Now, we're not very good at that today because a rhetorical question comes across and immediately people try to shoot up an answer and then you have to remind them, oh, it was a rhetorical question. It's meant to cause us to think. So Paul's doing this in verse 7. Jesus did this in his ministry as well. Rhetorical questions that were really caused, uh, are used to cause people to stop and think and examine themselves. Jesus does this to the Pharisees when he says, Have you not read? Maybe there was that one Pharisee who was like, Yeah, I have. But the point is, it's rhetorical. He does this to faithless Israelites when they question him and they don't live according to faith in their covenant God. And he says, Oh, wicked generation, how long must I be with you? And then when the ministry, the Messianic ministry of Jesus is questioned by John the Baptist and his disciples, and the people that are there with Jesus are wondering how Jesus is going to respond to this, he responds by quoting Isaiah 7, and then with rhetorical questions says, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A man dressed in effeminate soft clothing? Those men are in luxurious houses. These are rhetorical questions causing us to pause and think and examine what that answer actually ought to be. And that's what Paul's doing here in verse 7. So he says, For who regards you as superior? The 
The verb here presents this idea of making distinctions. So really the question is, who is the one who is able to make these distinctions among you? Who made you wealthy? Who made you a gifted speaker? And that's when he responds, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? So Paul's point is really, it's twofold here. The first is he's countering this imaginary social ladder that has been built in the Corinthian church. So the Corinthians, they've created this imaginary social ladder to create these distinctions within the body of Christ. Now Paul's actually going to talk about this in chapter 6 when he talks about distinctions that are being based between higher class and lower class, and that's why these lawsuits are taking place. And then he's going to do the same thing again in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where there's another distinction between high class and low class based on who's allowed to partake in the Lord's Supper. So these variable distinctions are there, and Paul says, who made these? So the terrible implications of such a social ladder taking place within the church, which is really imaginary, is that we forget God and think that we are better than others. And that's wisdom from the world. There's no social status in the eyes of God. There's nothing to boast in before God. We have to remember that in the eyes of God, apart from Christ, we are wretched. We have nothing to offer God. So any social ladder that exists, we are all on the bottom. But in Christ, we are brought low. We are exalted in Christ and given the status of children of the King of Kings. So in God's grace and mercy and love, he chose us before the foundations of the world to be able to take on his divine name, not because of anything that you can do for him, not because of any ability that you have. He didn't choose you for that. He chose you for his good pleasure. He chose you to delight in you. He chose you to use you to accomplish his divine good purposes. Not because of anything that we had to offer. So there's nothing for us to boast in, and there certainly should never exist any kind of social ladder within the body of Christ. That's antithetical to how the gospel presents us and what we've been made into in Christ. We're united in Christ. But at the same time, that's Paul, that would be the, you know, this two-fold kind of approach. The second thing would be that there are distinctions within the church. Not social ladder distinctions, but distinctions nonetheless. And this is what Paul is actually going to talk about in chapters 12 through 14, where we are different. I mean, just look around. We look different. We have different abilities. We have been gifted differently. Some people are financially better off than others. 
Some people have more success in different areas of life than others. Some of us are more athletic and strong. Some of us are better with people. Some of us are better drivers. We have been given an array of distinctions. But these are gifts. These are from the Lord. Man, you don't get to choose how tall you are. You don't get to choose your athletic ability. You don't get to choose how well you are at fixing things. Ladies, you don't get to choose your looks. You don't get to choose the abilities of your kids or how well you can multitask. Even those things that we put so much time and effort into. right? I think of the, a professional athlete who puts so much time and effort, even if he is naturally gifted, he's not going to make it to the pros unless he puts in the effort, right? Like he's just not going to. But even the drive itself to put in that kind of effort with that natural ability is a gift from the Lord. And this is why Paul can say, what is there to boast in? Everything you have, you have received. Even down to the mentality of working hard to make these things better in your life, that is a gift from God. So we cannot boast in men, period. But the problem is in the church, Today, we still have this tendency to compare each other according to worldly terms. And this is how we develop concepts like low self-esteem and high self-esteem. We've heard that before. Well, he's, you know, he's, he struggles with low self-esteem. And what we need to do is we need to uh, train our children to have higher self-esteem. But you're not going to find that idea in Scripture, The Bible doesn't talk about the idea of self-esteem because that's a worldly concept. That's worldly wisdom. You don't need anyone building up your self-esteem and you don't need to listen to anybody degrading you or lowering your self-esteem. Because self-esteem doesn't exist. Everything you have has been given from the Lord. And the way that you need to look at yourself is in the terms that the Bible has presented. This is why Pastor Keith says so much that there are two types of people that are lost and saved. You don't need to worry about your self-esteem. You need to worry about if you are in Christ or outside of Christ. And if you are outside of Christ, you are in rebellion to God and you are on the fast track to eternity of God's wrath and hell. You don't, it doesn't matter how low or high your self-esteem is. That's where you are going. On the flip side, if you are in Christ, you understand what a wretch you actually are, and yet you are exalted by God, and he looks at you and says, my son, my daughter, you don't need low or high self-esteem with that. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords has already declared who you are. And this is why we are always called to boast in the gift giver. 
Because he is the one who gives. He is the generous God. So our abilities, our successes, they are meant to be occasions of thanksgiving to the Lord who made us. But they are not meant to be for self-reliance or conceit and certainly not anything to boast in. So moving on into uh, verse 8, Paul goes from a rhetorical question to then, then Paul, he gets a, he gets a little snarky in verse 8. Paul uses some sarcasm here. He says, you are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we might reign with you. See, the Corinthian church, they had lived according to this wisdom of the world, and they had passed themselves off as kings. Now, the idea of why Paul would say this is because according to Stoic philosophy, if you were a wise man, it was like you were a king. And so the Corinthians, puffing themselves up with this kind of worldly philosophical wisdom, would naturally then, Paul's kind of picking at this idea that, you know, you're so puffed up with this wisdom that of course, yeah, you must be like kings. And then Paul says, but on the contrary, we apostles live according to the wisdom of the cross. So naturally, you, living according to the wisdom of the world, have set yourselves up as kings. And on the flip side, those of us who have lived according to the wisdom of the cross have become the scum of society. And this is what we do when we boast in ourselves, when we puff ourselves up Really, when we are living according to worldly wisdom, what we are doing is we are actually forsaking the wisdom of God, and at the same time, we are setting ourselves up as if we are kings, because we know better, or at least we think we do. And that's why Paul uses this kind of sarcasm, and then he says, with this irony, I wish that you had become kings also, so that we might reign with you. I said this a few weeks ago. But everything is ours because we belong to Christ and we will reign with him in the new creation. This is what 2 Timothy 2.12 says. If we endure, we will also reign with him. And this reigning with him is a privilege for those who overcome in this life and deny themselves, which is why Revelation 3.21 says, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And so that's why we as Christians, we can confidently say that those who live according to the wisdom of this world will be destroyed. But those who are fools for Christ have everything already and you will receive more. But this doesn't come by setting ourselves up as kings according to worldly wisdom. This comes from living a life of overcoming the world. And what, what we're talking about when we use that kind of language is not this conquering mentality uh, where we're just going to go out and you know, we're going to take over and plunder villages. The conquering mentality is that what we have 
in this world right now are two kingdoms clashing against each other. We have the kingdom of Christ, of which those who are born again have been brought into, and we have the kingdom of the world. We have a kingdom of light, and we have a kingdom of darkness. And right now, the kingdom of light is in this process of invading the kingdom of darkness, and the kingdom of darkness does not like it. And the kingdom of light is totally opposed to the kingdom of darkness. They don't think the same way. There's not the same worldview. They don't have the same kind of morality. And so the life of a Christian is recognizing that I am in the kingdom of the light and I need to deny myself, meaning I need to deny the pull of the kingdom of darkness. And I think we as Christians, we understand this, right? As we walk in Christ, we understand how the old kingdom calls back for us, right? It beckons us, and sometimes, sometimes we're deceived. And we don't deny ourselves. And we think according to the wisdom of the world for a season. Or we stumble and we fall back into an old sin pattern. This is, that's what's happening with the Corinthian church. And that's why Paul responds the way he does. He's calling them back out. Get out, right? You got you to get out of this worldly thinking. You got to get yourself back out of this kingdom of darkness and back into thinking according to the kingdom of light to which you belong. Paul then continues saying that he and the apostles have actually become a spectacle to the world. And then he ends this passage with my favorite literary technique. Do you guys know yet? Yes? A chiasm. If I see it, I'm saying it. Um, in verses 10 through 13, Paul writes, he has these three contrasts between the apostles and the Corinthians. And then in verses 11 and 12, he writes about the six tribulations that those who are the apostles, but really those who are dedicated to Christ, go through. And then he ends with three contrasting actions. And so Paul compares the disposition of the apostles to the supposed strength of the Corinthians. And that's why he says, you know, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent for Christ. And we are weak, but you are strong. We are distinguished, but we are without honor. And then Paul describes his tribulation. And really the point that we have here is that when we follow Christ... faithfully, and we are following the examples of the apostles, we can expect suffering in this life. And this is because when we are called out of the kingdom of darkness, our allegiance becomes to a new and righteous king. And this really, what, what happens at this point When you are called out of the kingdom of darkness and called into the kingdom 
of light. You are then called to be an ambassador of the kingdom of light to a kingdom that hates you. This is why Paul uses the armor imagery in places like Ephesians 6. See, we're not battling flesh and blood because, quite frankly, that's easy compared to the battle that we've been called into. The battle that we've been called into as Christians is the kind of battle where you have to go into the kingdom of darkness and love the citizens of the kingdom of darkness while hating the kingdom of darkness and the ideas of the kingdom of darkness and the principalities of the kingdom of darkness and the worldview of the kingdom of darkness and everything that the kingdom of darkness elevates and applauds and says is good and laughs at, we hate those things and yet at the same time we have to love those citizens because our goal is to get them out. So naturally we can expect that if we are living a faithful life in doing that, what is going to be the response from those who are living in the kingdom of darkness to us? Are they going to like what we have to say? Are they going to be offended? Are some people in this world even killed for it? That's the life that Paul is talking about. See, Paul's, the, the reason Paul's building this contrast is because he's really trying to get across, like, you, you, you've set yourself up as kings, you're living according to this worldly wisdom, and really the call is to suffer and die. The call is to deny self. The call is to enter the battle. We have work to do. And in order to do this work properly, we need to be having the mind of Christ. We need to be thinking according to the wisdom of God. And so my question is, are, are you ready for the tribulations of a life dedicated to Christ? You know, Paul says that we were hungry, thirsty, poorly clothed, beaten, and had to toil and work with our hands. And, you know, the reality is, is you know, the, the culture that we live in, at least right now, is most of us don't know what it's like to be hungry for the sake of the gospel. Most of us have probably never been beaten or faced a threat because we decided to share the gospel with somebody. And a lot of pastors today don't have to work second jobs where they have to toil with their hands. And so right now in our culture, our tribulations look different. Right now our tribulations may just simply look like we look like fools to the world. And they think that the way we think is backward and old-fashioned and oppressive and hateful. But if we're not ready to deny ourselves and take on these sort of tribulations, then we certainly won't be ready when other ones come. Are you ready to be roughly treated for the gospel? 
So really, ultimately, this life of humility and denying self is found uh, best in the work and person of Jesus Christ. Right? Christ gave up his throne. He gave up his lofty position, and he took on the life of a slave, and he took on the cross. This is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus... Though he was superior, did not regard himself as superior, though he had every right to. Christ was not boastful, he was not arrogant, he was not proud, and instead he came and did the good work he was commissioned to do, and he willingly laid down his life for the church. And now he has called his followers to do the same. So I want to now look at a couple ways of how we can practically do this. I hope at this point we understand that we have nothing to boast in and that instead what we have been called to is a life of self-denial. A life following the example of the apostles and even more importantly the example of our Lord and Savior. You know, you belong to Christ. You belong to Him. And your Lord calls on you. And that's a big deal. He calls on you. Because he wants to use you. He's called you to be a disciple maker. He's called you to be a fisher of men. He's called you to act as the citizen of the heavenly kingdom that you are. And he has called you to be an ambassador for that kingdom. And Lord, have mercy on us if we continue to walk as if those callings are trivial or optional. So how do we keep ourselves from becoming prideful and boastful in order to remain on this life of self-sacrifice that we are called to? One, we need to remember the Lord our God. We need to remember the Lord our God. This is what it says in Deuteronomy 8, 11 through 18. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, Then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, 
out of the house of slavery. He led you through the great terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of flint in the wilderness. He fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, you would say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. We need to remember the Lord our God. And we remember him in two distinct ways based on this passage. The first way that we need to remember the Lord is by keeping his commandments. Notice how in Deuteronomy 8 here, there's this correlation between remembering God and doing what God says. Remembering the Lord and what he has rescued you from and being obedient to his call and his commandments. That makes sense, right? I mean, think back to what the Lord has called you out of in your life. He has called you out of slavery to sin. He has called you out of Egypt. And now he's saying, lest you forget that I am the one who called you out of the land of slavery to your sin, to your destruction, that I, with my strong hand, rescued you from, lest you forget that and return to these evil ways, you need to remember me by obeying what I say. And this is what Jesus says. This is what he's saying in John chapter 14 as well when he says, if you love me, you will obey me. Amen. Our obedience to God is not out of this, you know, this obligation to try to please some sort of deity. We obey the Lord because we love the Lord and we love the Lord because we know what he has rescued us from. And so, as we remember what the Lord has done for us, we are hopefully overwhelmed by that grace and mercy from the Lord, that love that He has for us, and so our love for Him becomes overflowing, and that overflowing love leads to a life of obedience to Him. That's the kind of obedience that God is looking for. Because remember, He doesn't need our abilities. He doesn't need our sacrifices. That is what separated him from all the ancient gods. They had sacrificial systems, but the difference was they understood their gods needed those sacrifices. That's how they ate. That's how they survived. Our God doesn't need them. He calls for our obedience from a posture of love as we remember who the Lord is. So we remember God by keeping his commandments. And I think we understand that obviously then the opposite would be true, that as we walk in disobedience, when I walk in disobedience in my life, really what I'm doing is I'm forgetting the Lord who purchased me. Right? We also remember when we offer thanksgiving. Everything we do, everything we have needs to be laced in thanksgiving. Because it is the Lord who has given us the gift. It is the Lord who has provided. So before we eat, we give thanks, even though we work to put that food on our table. But then you know what? That leads us to remember, hey, you know what? The gift of being able to work to put this food on my table, that came from the Lord too. 
And you know what? My ability to even wake up this morning so that I could go to work, that was from a providential gift of God. He woke me up. And lest we boast in anything, we should recognize that even something as simple as taking our next breath is a gift from the Lord. He provides my next breath. So we need to give thanks to all things that the Lord has given us, and we give thanks through praising His name on mornings like today. And we also give thanks by not wasting those gifts that the Lord has given you. He has given you gifts. He has given you abilities. And the way that you give thanks is not just by recognizing them, but using them. So we need to remember the Lord our God, and then we need to mold our life after the examples of the apostles and our Lord Jesus Christ. This does not mean that everyone needs to quit their job and go become missionaries. It doesn't mean that everyone's called to go to a street corner and hand out tracts and talk to people about the gospel. Although I will say, if you've never done it, you should try it. There are worse ways to spend a Saturday. But that's not necessarily what Paul's getting at here. That's not necessarily what this means. What this really means is that day to day we are living a life of self-sacrifice and we are living it unto the Lord. And this purpose for doing it is that really we have taken on the great commission of God. We have taken on this role of ambassador seriously and we live that out day to day. And it means that we are salt and light exactly where the Lord has called us. So for some of you, this means building businesses and treating your employees well and customers. For others, it means using your musical capabilities to praise the Lord and write good music. And for some of you, it means building relationships with people at work and sharing the gospel with them. For parents, it means taking seriously the idea of teaching your children to follow the Lord and fear Him. For some, it means you need to start serving at church. For others, it means you need to start serving at church again. For some, it means fixing our marriages so that God can start using you and your spouse for his glory and his kingdom. Really what it comes down to is that you have been called to serve Christ in the Great Commission. You have been called to serve Christ. And he's given you the gifts and abilities to do that. And he wants you to use it for his glory. And really... As we look back on our life, is there really anything else that matters? We strive and we work now, but we are working toward the glory of our Sabbath rest. We are working with eternity in mind because we know that the victory has already been purchased. We know that it's already been won by Christ. 
And so we are called to work with him in this earthly ministry, looking forward to our heavenly reward.